The scripture reading for today comes from Acts chapter 10, verses 21 through 43. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you, to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day, he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, why you sent for me? And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we all are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge, uh, to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Amen. You can be seated, and good morning again. Welcome to New Life Fremont. My name is Kevin, if I haven't had a chance to meet any of you yet. And we are continuing our sermon series through the book of Acts called The World Turned Upside Down. Wherever the gospel goes, it turns things upside down. Eunuchs are given an everlasting name. Pharisees become apostles. The unclean become clean. And we are in a section of Acts where the gospel is spreading beyond Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria, beyond Jews to Gentiles also. And this is the third of three weeks that have focused on a Gentile individual. You know, two weeks ago we talked about the Ethiopian eunuch, 
Last week, we talked about the Pharisee Saul, also known as the Apostle Paul. And today, we're going to be talking about a man named Cornelius, a Roman centurion, a military officer. Now, as we dive deeper into Cornelius's conversion story, we're going to have three points. First, fearing God. Second, worshiping man. And third, showing impartiality. Fearing God, worshiping man, and showing impartiality. Let's begin with our first point, fearing God. Our passage uh, begins with some men coming to get the apostle Peter on behalf of a man named Cornelius. And so Peter meets the men and asks why they have sought him out. And they say to him in verse 22, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. Cornelius sent us. Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man. You know, Cornelius is described as a God-fearing man. And this wasn't in our passage, uh, but at the beginning of chapter 10 in verse 2, It says about Cornelius that he was a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to people, and he prayed continually to God. And so Cornelius has a pretty good resume. He's a centurion, a Roman military officer, which might lead some to think that the Jews wouldn't like him because sometimes there were conflicts between Roman authorities and the Jews, but that's not the case with Cornelius. He's well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation. And he even seems to have his religious bona fides, too. He's devout. He's upright. He gives alms generously. That means he gives food and money to the poor. It also says that he prays continually to God. In verses 30 through 33, Cornelius explains why he sent for Peter. Cornelius says, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, Your prayer has been heard. Your alms have been remembered before God. And so send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. I mean, talk about a spiritual, religious experience that Cornelius has just had. He has a dream where an angel tells him that his prayers have been heard, that his alms have been remembered, and he's instructed to go visit an apostle. And you might think, Cornelius is basically already saved, right? I mean, he fears God, he prays, he gives alms, he's hearing from angels and dreams. What more could you want? You know, Cornelius... It's actually similar to another character in Scripture named Nicodemus. Uh, Do you guys know Nicodemus? Nicodemus was a Pharisee and a a member of the Sanhedrin, and he's mentioned in the Gospel of John. Uh, But, you know, unlike many of the other Pharisees, Nicodemus actually has a positive attitude toward Jesus. And in John 3, he comes to talk to Jesus in the middle of the night. And uh, the reason he did it in the middle of the night was probably because he was a little bit nervous about being seen with Jesus by the other Pharisees. But he still comes to talk to Jesus. And he says to him, Rabbi, I know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could do the signs that you do unless God is with him. I mean, he speaks really highly of Jesus. And you might ask a similar question of Nicodemus. Is he already 
a believer? What does Jesus say to Nicodemus? Does he say, thank goodness you're not like the other Pharisees, Nicodemus. You're clearly in, we're cool. Is that what Jesus says to Nicodemus? No. Jesus says this to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Saying that I'm a teacher who has come from God is not enough, Nicodemus. Being impressed with my signs is not enough. You need to be born again. You need to be born of the Spirit. Same thing applies for Cornelius. Being devout, being upright, giving alms generously, praying continually to God, even fearing God, being called a God-fearer, it's not enough. Cornelius needs to come to terms with Jesus. He needs to come to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, not just some vague conception of a God up there that he prays to or does good things for because he's aware that he's watching, but Jesus as God. Jesus as a sacrifice for sins, a substitute for Cornelius. You know, Jesus as the resurrected and ascended Lord. Cornelius needs saving faith in Jesus. He needs to be born again. He needs to be born of the Spirit. And we actually see after our passage in verse 44 uh, that by the end of all this, Cornelius does eventually have saving faith. Verse 44 says, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, including Cornelius. And so apparently he had not been born of the Spirit until then. That's when he came to saving faith in Jesus. And this emphasis on really needing to specifically have saving faith in Jesus comes up several times in the New Testament. You know, not just some general belief in a God, but specifically in Jesus as God, Jesus as Savior, Jesus as Lord. Uh, and it's interesting, there's actually two ways to seem good, seem like you're good with God, but still ultimately miss Jesus. And so you have like Cornelius and Nicodemus are on one side of the example. They do all the right things. They're spiritual, even. You know, they do the types of things that Scripture commands, good works, but they're lacking Christ's saving work on their behalf. They conceive of him as a Lord of sorts, you could say, but not really as their Savior, not really as the one who substituted himself on their behalf. So that's one way you can miss Jesus. But the other way to seem good with God is to still ultimately miss Jesus, uh, but conceive of him as your personal Savior only, but not really your Lord. You know, you might think that you got the get-out-of-hell-free get card. You know, yeah, 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 Jesus died for my sins, I believe, but I'm not going to worry too much about actually doing his will. You know, he's not the one that I'm loyal to above all else, the one I obey at all costs. You know, this comes out in James's epistle, chapter 2. You know, the whole faith without works is dead. James says, you believe in God. Great. Even demons believe in God. You're showing faith apart from works when you ought to show your faith by your works. Or consider Matthew 7. Jesus says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? 
And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You know, saving faith requires being born again, being born of the Spirit, a total transformation, a new life, a new creation. Jesus as your Savior and Lord, not just one or the other. You know, true conversion is evidenced by faith as well as the good works and life change that proceed from that faith. Not one or the other, both hand in hand. But what about for us? You know, what should we take away from Cornelius' status as one who fears God, as he's a God-fearer, but he's not saved yet? He's not been born of the Spirit yet. What does that have to do with us? You know, one of the challenges of being a minister and a preacher is that I don't know precisely what's going on inside each and every one of your hearts. And so I have to declare things, you know, truths from Scripture, and then trust the Holy Spirit with it. You know, for example, if you're saved, if you've been born again, if you've been born of the Spirit, and the Holy Spirit dwells within you, then I have faith that when I declare something from God's Word, it will be taken by the Holy Spirit and solidified within you, which is, you know, why one thing we do each week in our worship service is declare the assurance of God's grace. You know, I repeat the promises of God to God's people, those he has saved, and the Holy Spirit works those words and truths into your hearts so that shame or guilt or accusations from the evil one don't control you anymore, but instead God's grace does. So that's one supremely important part of our worship together, assuring true believers of God's grace and their salvation. That's what the Holy Spirit does. I'm not absolving you of sins. I'm just declaring promises that God has already said, and the Holy Spirit is working them in your heart. But on the other hand, it's possible that some of you here think you're saved, but you're not. You might be a lot like Cornelius. Could be that you have confidence in all your good works, Confidence that your life is that of a good Christian or of a God-fearer. Confidence that you add value to the faith community, or vice versa, the faith community adds value to you. But you don't really embrace Jesus' ultimate work on the cross to forgive your sins specifically. Or on the flip side, could be that you believe you have faith in the forgiveness of sins, but no good works or life change or transformation flow from it. And so my words for people like that are always to highlight what Scripture says accompanies true saving faith. Starting first and foremost most with belief in the basics of the gospel. You know, God created everything, but humans rebelled against God. And because of that, we're all born sinful, and there's a deficit between us and God, a break in our relationship. But God in his grace created a solution in Christ. Jesus would come fully live a righteous life, fulfill the law, but instead of getting what he deserved, he took our sin and paid the price that it deserved on our behalf. And because of that, anyone can have their sins paid for by trusting and resting on Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins. And if you do that, then just like Christ was resurrected, you one day will resurrect. And so the first thing is believing that, but believing in that message also has to do something within you. Right? Conversion is a new creation. It's being born again. It's a transformation. You know, if that story of good news is just something you mentally assent to, but it doesn't move you, it doesn't encourage you, it doesn't give you hope, it doesn't transform you in any way, then you might not truly believe it. 
Because if the gospel is true and you believe it, that changes everything. It turns everything upside down. So saving faith requires more than just uh, fearing God. It requires more. It requires also being born again. It requires being born of the Spirit, a total transformation, a new life. Jesus as your Savior and Lord, not just one or the other. And as we'll see for Cornelius, despite all of his religious bona fides, there's still something missing for him. So that takes us to our second point, worshiping man. Who is a spiritual hero of yours? Who is someone in the faith that you look up to, you hold in high regard, you sing the praises of? Who is a spiritual hero of yours? Probably come as no surprise to many of you that a hero of mine is Pastor Tim Keller. My philosophy of ministry is heavily influenced by him. I've read just about every book he's written. I've I listen to multiples of his sermons each and every week. Tim Keller can do no wrong in my eyes. Except that he actually can. He's just a man, after all. He's a sinner. He's finite. He has weaknesses. He's just a man. Yet it's easy to treat him as something, as something greater than a man, almost as godlike or a savior of sorts, as if he could never be wrong or never fail. But he can. He is wrong sometimes. He has failed before. He's just a man. In our passage, notice how Cornelius reacts when he and Peter meet. Verse 25. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. He worships him. Cornelius falls down at Peter's feet and worships him. And how does Peter respond? Verse 26, But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up! I too am a man. Peter is like, What are you doing? I'm not God. I'm a man just like you are. Don't worship me. Worship God. You know, this is related to a couple other passages in Scripture. Something similar happens in Revelation 22, 8 through 9, when John worships an angel. It says there, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. You shouldn't worship a man. You shouldn't even worship an angel. You must not do that, the angel says. God is the only one you should worship. Something of the opposite happens in Luke chapter 7, 37 and 38. It says there, And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, She began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. You know, the Pharisees tried to say that Jesus shouldn't allow that. You know, she's basically worshiping him, right? She's fallen at Jesus' feet, worshiped him, and the Pharisees know that only God should be worshiped. But what does Jesus say? He says that she's done exactly what she should do and that her sins are forgiven. And the point is clear. 
she's right to worship him because he is God. Worship God, not man. Cornelius mistakenly worships Peter. John mistakenly worships an angel. The only one of these three examples that got it right, a prostitute who worshiped Jesus. Which is interesting, right? Those with credentials who are well-respected, who live righteously, you know, Cornelius, the Roman centurion, the God-fearer, John, the apostle of Jesus Christ, they're the ones who mistakenly bow before non-gods. But who gets it right? The prostitute. The one who sees perfectly clearly just how much she has been loved and forgiven by Jesus. You know, if you're someone who tends to be well-respected, held in high regard by others, who has the right credentials, watch out. You're at higher risk of worshiping something or someone other than God. And we all look for something or someone to worship. We long for a hero, and we have one in Jesus. But it's really easy to leave Jesus' feet and find ourselves worshiping at the feet of just a human or some other spiritual idol. You know, who are you drawn to worship at the feet of who's just a human? And who do you sometimes treat as if they were something more than just a man or just a woman? You know, it could be a, a politician, you know, so-and-so and such-and-such such a political position or someone running for office who always seems to have exactly the right take, the perfect response to the latest drama in the 24-hour news cycle, who if everyone would just realize is the solution to all our problems, who if everyone would just vote for and elect, then we would all be saved. Or maybe it's not a politician. Maybe it's a pastor or a Christian celebrity of some kind who you are drawn to worship at the feet of. That's what Cornelius does. But famous Christians or pastors are a particular danger because it's so close to being right. They're Christians. They love Jesus. They preach and teach about him. And yet, we can very easily find ourselves not at Jesus' feet, but at this pastor's feet or this famous Christian's feet. You know, I, look, I think Tim Keller is great, but he is not Jesus. Even the best of the best pales in comparison to Jesus. Or maybe who you thought was the best of the best lets you down. You know, maybe they let you down because they're human after all. They're finite. They have weaknesses. They make mistakes. They can't meet your expectations anymore. Or, of course, what has sadly come to light more and more in recent years is that maybe you've been let down uh, by one of the many famous pastors and Christians who have revealed not to just suffer from normal finitude and weakness of being human, but actually be found to be in tremendous sin and error and even wickedness. You know, they, they created a hostile and abusive work environment for their staff. They misused their power. They hid their misdeeds. They have secret lives. They abuse people. I probably don't even have to name names. I'm sure you can already think of some of these people. We must be on our guard against worshiping at the feet of mere humans. At their best, they still fall short of Jesus, and they can fall much, much lower, too. You know, instead, we must actively pursue falling at Jesus' feet alone to worship. And that doesn't happen accidentally. 
No one just accidentally finds himself worshiping at the feet of Jesus. We have to resolve in our hearts, set our minds, pattern our lives around falling at Jesus' feet in worship. It's the only way to ensure we don't find ourselves at merely human feet. So in, in what ways do you intentionally place yourself at Jesus' feet to worship? You know, how ought you orient your life so that you're frequently placing yourself at Jesus' feet? You know, first suggestion of mine will be no surprise. Sunday worship, preaching to the choir, you're all here. You know, prioritize this day, prioritize the time. Might sound crazy, but you could arrive early even to church. You could pray with the group that gets together at 10 or fellowship and welcome newcomers. You know, when other humans or whatever else vies for your time and attention on Sunday, turn away from them and turn toward Jesus. You know, prioritize this time to follow Jesus' feet. Or another idea, you know, take stock of what you do first and last each day. Now, what's the last thing you do before you go to bed? What's the first thing you do when you wake up? And look, I am one to talk because I have pretty terrible bedtime and wake-up habits. But the last thing you do before you go to bed or the first thing you do when you wake up in the morning either place you at the feet of Jesus or someone or something else. You know, is it praise God from whom all blessings flow or praise phone from whom all blessings flow? You know, I had a pastor who, when he would go to bed each night, he had a little, you know, ritual, you could call it, where he would turn off the lights, get into bed, and as he was pulling the covers on him, he would imagine that it was his death. Like he was acting out, getting into his own coffin and being buried. But he had the faith to do that because each morning he would imagine his resurrection. Jesus waking him up from the sleep of death and lifting him into a new and glorious life. You know, so going to bed, he acted out his death and burial. Waking up, he acted out his resurrection. And that ritual placed him at the feet of Jesus each and every day, living in the hope of his future resurrection. Just an idea. I have tons of them if any of you want to talk more. But my main point is this. What would it look like for you to orient your life around Jesus more than it's oriented around man and man's concerns? What would it look like for you to be falling at Jesus' feet intentionally instead of man's feet? One last thing to say on this point. Um, We're obviously in the middle of a pastor search. And let me just say, pastors are just men. I'm just a man. Whoever you hire will just be a man. And I mean, you should obviously hire someone with high character and integrity, but know that you're hiring a man, a human. You know, I, I was once participating in a seminar with some other pastors, and an older pastor posed a question to us. He asked, do you know why God called each of you to be a pastor? No one really knew what to answer, and so the man answered for us. God called you to be a pastor because it was the only way he could sanctify you. The only way that God could sanctify you was by making it your job to study the scriptures, pray, worship, and care for people. It was the only way he could sanctify you. And if he didn't do that, you'd be dead in a ditch somewhere. (laughs) Perhaps a bit of an exaggeration, but you get the point. Pastors are just men. Men daily in need of Christ's sanctifying work in their life. And so don't hire a pastor that you can imagine yourself falling at the feet of. Hire a pastor who leads you to fall at Jesus' feet. We don't want to be people who fall at man's feet. We want to be people who fall at Jesus' feet. Cornelius fell at a man's feet. But thankfully, Peter, a Jew, even though Cornelius was a Gentile, made him stand up 
and pointed him to Jesus, the true God of Jew and Gentile alike. That takes us to our final point, showing impartiality. There's a portion of the Apostle Paul's epistle to the Galatians where he tells a story about a time that he needed to confront the Apostle Peter. In uh, Galatians 2, verses 11 through 14, Paul says this, But when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party, And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Essentially, Peter was totally fine hanging out with Gentiles until some Jews known as the circumcision party came to town. And the circumcision party believed that Gentiles weren't truly Christians unless they were circumcised. That is, unless they became like Jews first. And this subject's going to come up again in Acts when we get to chapter 15. Uh, But Paul confronts Peter in Galatians. Uh, Paul confronts Peter because circumcision is not necessary to become a Christian. It's fine if Jewish Christians wish to continue practicing it, but they may not insist on Gentiles being circumcised. And they shouldn't be breaking fellowship or refusing to eat with Gentiles over the issue. Paul says to Peter that his conduct is not in step with the truth of the gospel. Because in the gospel, God does not show partiality between Jew and Gentile. Peter knew that. He knew that in Galatians because of the Jerusalem council. He also knew it because of what happens in our passage in Acts 10. Verses 28 and 29 of our passage, Peter says, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. Anyone of another nation is a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. Peter mentions that God showed him that he should not call any person common or unclean. And this was from earlier in chapter 10, before our passage started, um, in verses 9 through 16. What happens is that Peter goes up on his housetop to pray. He becomes hungry, but before he can find something to eat, he falls into a trance. And in that trance, he sees the heavens opening up and a great sheet descending down from heaven like a big picnic blanket. And in it are all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds. And God's voice tells him to kill and eat. But Peter refuses because these animals are unclean. Jews didn't eat them. And so he says to God, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And what does God say back to Peter? What God has made clean, do not call common. And Peter finally gets it. In Jesus, all the ceremonial laws of Israel, all the laws about what is clean or unclean, holy or common, they've been fulfilled and they've gone away. And of course, food was a major part of that what you could eat, what you could not eat. But another important part of the ceremonial laws was related to what kind of people you could interact with. You know, this is a bit of an oversimplification, but in general, Jews were not to associate or interact with Gentiles, really. There were ways for Gentiles to join the people of God. There were, you know, ritual ceremonial processes for that. But by and large, 
the general attitude was that Jews did not mix with Gentiles. But now, Peter says, God has shown him not only that he should not call food unclean or common, but he shouldn't call any person common or unclean. You know, Jews, Israelites, the nation of Israel, those who live in Jerusalem, who worship at the temple, they're no longer a place of exclusive privilege. The gospel is going forth to all nations, to all people, and all the ritual and ceremonial things that used to separate Jews from Gentiles, they've been done away with. All the food has been made clean by God. All the people can be made clean by, without becoming a Jew first. They can be made clean through Christ's sacrifice. And so in verses 34 to 35, Peter says this to Cornelius and all the other Gentiles with him, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. God shows no partiality. In every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable. The gospel is for everyone. There's no barriers keeping certain types of people away. In every nation, anyone is acceptable to him, can be acceptable to him. God shows impartiality, which is in stark contrast with humans, right? Humans show partiality all the time. God shows no partiality, but humans often show partiality. We already talked about this briefly during the time of renewal, but again, how are you guilty of partiality? What kinds of people do you treat as common, unclean, unholy? What kinds of people do you tend to avoid? Who do you keep at arm's length for no real reason other than that they're different from you? God's words to Peter are the same for you. Do not call what God has made clean common, unholy, unclean. Let me flip things around, though. When have you been treated with partiality? When have you been treated as common, unclean, unholy? When have you been kept at arm's length by someone? I mean, life is full of rejection, right? It comes in all different forms and sizes. Maybe you text someone and they never reply. Or you apply for a job, but they don't even interview you. A group of people you know got together, but you didn't get an invite. You planned an event. Nobody showed up for it. These are relatively minor forms of being treated with partiality, but they still hurt. I don't even need to tell you of the major pain that you can experience from big rejections, the overt times that you've been treated with partiality. You've been treated with partiality. You've treated people with partiality. Everyone struggles with partiality, but who shows impartiality? Who shows impartiality even to those who themselves are partial? Who shows impartiality to you? Jesus. Jesus shows impartiality. He's not partial. Listen to what Peter says about Jesus at the end of our passage. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him will receive forgiveness of sins through his name. 
God shows no partiality. In every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. But it's interesting, I don't know if you caught this, there's actually a verse in there that kind of makes it seem like Jesus does show partiality. Did you, did you notice it? Verses 40 and 41, Peter says that God raised Jesus on the third day and made him to appear not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses. Well, why not all the people? Why only some? That seems kind of partial, right? Well, ultimately, no. Do you see how? Only appearing to some, to Jewish witnesses, only appearing to some was the means by which Jesus began to bring about impartiality among his people. Because those Jewish witnesses had to leave behind their partiality that they used to exercise and instead show impartiality and tell all people about Jesus. You know, if Jesus had appeared to all people, then everyone would have just continued to show partiality like they were. There would be no need to leave behind partiality. You know, the walls of of partiality would not need to come down. But by leaving the task of being as witnesses to only some initially made it so that they had to go past the normal walls of partiality. That's how Jesus ultimately showed impartiality to all people, by sending his witnesses to all people. Now, that's true and amazing, and we see the fruit of it 2,000 years later, but it can also be a little abstract, right? And so let me conclude here with just a little more specific and personal reflection on Jesus' impartiality to you. Yes, Jesus has been impartial to all people, but he's also been impartial to you specifically. And it's important that you feel that. Cornelius fell at the feet of Peter. And when he did that, what would he have seen? Just normal human feet. Peter was likely wearing sandals. His feet were probably covered in dirt. And those are the wrong feet to fall at, right? You know, we don't want to fall at the feet of man. We want to fall at the feet of Jesus. Well, if you fall at the feet of Jesus, what do you see? Peter's feet, any human's feet, they'll just be normal human feet. But if you fall at the feet of Jesus, what will you see? You will see holes. When you fall at Jesus' feet, there are holes there for you. From when Jesus was impartial to you. From when Jesus accepted you. From when Jesus substituted himself for you. When you fall at the feet of Jesus, there are holes. Holes for you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we praise you and thank you for your son and for your impartial love toward all humanity. Father, we confess that we are often partial, but we pray, Lord, that the sacrifice of your son, that he substituted himself in our place, that he was pierced and suffered on our behalf, would tear down the walls of partiality we put up. Father, help us to fall more and more at your feet and not at any man's feet. We pray this all in Jesus' name, Lord. Amen.